Welcome to Weird Sauce, a podcast about formulas. In these conversations, I intend to rethink with you the rhythms of our lives. From the exceptional to the routine, I wander into the patterns, the alchemy of experiences, good and bad, from scientists to high achievers. Life is not a long, quiet river, so follow me upstream into the extraordinary, the storms, the mishaps, the components that may inspire you today and tomorrow. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Your health is your responsibility and that of your physician. Always seek advice from your physician before choosing any lifestyle interventions you may have heard in this podcast. Dr. Karen Aviram, welcome to Weird Sauce. Thank you for making time for us in uh, from your location in Israel. And could you kindly introduce yourself for our audience? Yes, so um, I'm Karen and I live in Tel Aviv. Um, I'm a neuroscientist, um, a neurotherapist also. Um, I've worked many years in uh, neuropsychiatry. Um, and in the past three years, I'm working more in startup companies, mostly um, to develop and also to support in terms of research and clinical perspective, uh, different types of um innovations, both for diagnosis and therapy. Um, so yeah, this is pretty much it. Right. And so neuroscientists is like a big, one of these big soup words that can fit into almost anything. Um, although it's, it's very complex. Um, I assume that it has a, a very specific application. So in your case, what kind of a neuroscientist are you? So I don't come from like um, biochemistry or very bio biological fields. You know, I, I came from um, actually linguistics and psycholinguistics and then cognitive psychology. Um, and, and quite early um, in my training and education, I by accident actually started to work in um, a psychiatric ward. Um, and the reason for this was that I was very much interested in using what we call uh, neuromodulation techniques. So it's different techniques that we use in order to modulate or to change brain activity. Mostly, some of it is for science per se, when we want really to test certain models, but a lot of it is also to, to find ways to um, help patients. Um, so one of the biggest um, domain in which we actually apply neuromodulation is depression. Um, so I was part of this research team, clinical research team, back in 2005, 2006. Um, and, and this is where I started basically to be more in the field of applied neuroscience. So it's more about how you use neuroscience methods, but also like models or understanding in real life um, situations. And here we used it in psychiatry, but we can also use it for education. So how to better teach students or how to better work with patients, which is what I've done afterward. Um, but but that that was the beginning, I would say. And since then, you know, I just um, moved from, I started from brain stimulation, which is more magnetic, and then moved to more electrical, but very um, low current, not something um, very invasive, not invasive and not something very robust. So it's usually um, an okay experience for patients and sometimes it can be very helpful. Um, and then I moved more to like EEG, which is uh, brain waves. It's more electrophysiology and then to MRI um, and neurofeedback. So this is the way we use a signal in order to give feedback to the patient about the state of the brain activity. And this is how uh, we can actually change brain activity, what we call like brain computer interface. Um, so this is pretty much what I've done 
in the past uh, 15 years. Um, and I think there's a lot of wisdom that we already achieved. Uh, of course, there's a lot we don't know, and there's a lot in the progress of becoming more knowable. But I think there's also a lot of knowledge that I find very interesting, um, both to teach, for example, psychotherapists, and also to use myself, uh, because one of the principles I really like from neuroscience is that um, we we have a certain way to take very complex human experiences, um, sometimes too complex, and, and try to model them, not in a way that we really think that this is all it is, yes, but just to make sense in terms of what are the processes and the sub-processes and the stages that, that needs to go on in order to reach a certain state of, for example, being aware of what's going on within me or being able to think in a way that is focused and, and, and suitable for the context. Um, so for us, I think we can today use a lot of this information in order to help people understand better their inner experience and also to know what to focus on in order to improve. Yes, improve our functioning, improve our skills, or also the way we feel about what we're capable of dealing with. That's that's a lot of trigger word for me in that in what you said, considering the past um, two years that we've gone through. So I imagine that given that you were dealing with different uh, presenting pathology from what you've explained, um, I am I am assuming that you as a human being going through this pandemic and you as a uh, neuroscientist uh, going through this pandemic, it, it definitely must have changed something in the way, or many things in the way that you both use what you do to help uh, people feel better, but also in your understanding of such large uh, scale uh, perceptual changes that happen at the planetary level through a pandemic, for example. So could you talk to us a little bit about how relevant your field of expertise has been to help yourself while you were going through COVID and, and the various maybe things that happened in, in Israel specifically, and how now you have a little bit of, of sort of um, retro view on it and, and think how this will change perhaps the way that you perceive uh, depression and stress in at, at a at a global level for your patient. Wow, um, this is a very big question. I'm not sure. Like I actually thought about what I do uh, through the lenses of the pandemic. I think um, somehow I got um, more. Um, how to say, taken by, you know, how we just move from one stage to another, hoping to make sense of it um, and, and going through a lot of different emotional phases as everyone, you know, like when we thought, okay, we're getting out of it maybe, and then another wave and then another wave. And, and then a lot of the, the, I think the truths that I personally had in mind, um, you know, like about science, the, how, how reliable science is. And I, I think I mentioned that before to someone that I was like, you know, we always tell ourselves, oh, in the past, people decided all these stupid things because, you know, they didn't have the data. You know, no one collected the data. And then now we have so much data, most of the time we don't even know how to analyze it, or we just uh, decide which data to analyze and then what to present. So I think for me as a scientist, I'm not like, you know, this really hardcore scientist, but still I grew up in, in the scientific field and I do research. Uh, in a way for me, like um, I, I think I didn't lose... Um, uh, faith or confidence in science, but I think we should really ask ourselves what happened. What happened um, when people disagree about the interpretation or which data to present? 
Um, and, and, and I think, um, putting something in the front and ignoring completely all the other aspects. So we see it a lot in education and we see it a lot in the psychiatric world where, where a lot of people could not get uh, proper treatment. And a lot of kids, for example, that stayed at home, you know, got worse and got into all these different like, uh, um, uh, the, you know, symptoms like depression and eating disorder and, and, um, and self, uh, hurt, you know, and then we, we don't have enough capacity because it's already always a system that is not much in the priority of the medical world. And, and, and it just like, you know, um, a wave and another wave and another wave. And then somehow we forget, you know, about, mental health. So it's, it's not enough just to, you know, somehow be, you know, focused on the virus, you know, what about all the rest of it? And, and sometimes I felt that we're so easily compromised, you know, different, um, different paradigms of health. What is healthy for me? Like for me it was healthy, for example, to go to the beach and, and, you know, just walk on the beach and, and breathe. And, and, and the fact that someone decided for me that I need to stay at home now for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, and this is what, you know, prevents, um, sickness for me. I, I, I'm not sure, like it's, it's logical, whatever happened. And we see that till now in Israel, at least, uh, it, you know, there's some people who don't admit, you know, that there were so many, damages that we ignored and we sacrificed basically children, but also um, older people, you know, that were not allowed to be visited and were isolated. And um, especially people with already cognitive decline, they got even worse. Um, and, and, and I understand that, you know, it was a very confusing situation, but I think in a way it, it somehow represents the way we look at health in general, what we put in the front of it, what defines it. And, and, and for me, somehow it's not surprising, but it was surprising to see to what extent we can go with it. And just say, oh, you know, emotional health is not important, you know, and we don't have to like give tools to manage stress. And, 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 and also I'm not sure like any of us actually understood how terrible it is for people to not be in contact with other people because it was so natural for us to be in contact with people. Sometimes, especially in Israel, it's a very small country. It's a very tribal society. You always see family and friends, even when you don't want to. So it's always like, you know, we live together. And then all of a sudden people got really depressed and some people even lost, you know, felt, or at least they felt that they losing like social skills. And, and, and I remember I was like, um, in isolation for like three weeks because of uh, being exposed to someone. And then I felt afterward, like I, I I'm like going out of like a trauma, you know, I felt completely unsettled to be outside in the world and, and that I don't even know how to start life again, you know, only from three weeks that I was not allowed to be out at all. And I think all these things, like we don't even think about them, you know, too much because before it was never an issue. So, 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 so what do you do with it now? That's the question. Like it already happened. We already did this or these mistakes. And, and what do we understand from it now? What do we have to do to correct this? This is my prior question. Um, and, and I don't hear a lot of discussion about it. 
Yeah, I think I think the discussion is is a, a very good indicator of what what we're not seeing and we should be seeing. Um, I, I think you know this reductionism that we've gone through, which is that health and life is defined as one single parameters. In this case, it was the coronavirus, and then to fix it, you've got one single tool, and that's the vaccine, uh, pretty much. And we're not going to get into the whole discussion about which vaccine or what, but it was just this one tool, you know. So you've got one nail. This is the hammer. Bit at it. Once we've had a nail in, we're done. And that seems so ridiculously simplistic that I wanted to hear from, you know, the perspective of an, especially a neuroscientist who specializes in, in stress. So chronic and acute stress, we, we knew from before coronavirus is a terrible impact on the brain. And for those of you uh, listening who are not familiar with Israel and the, the life in Israel and society in Israel, it's a society that's extremely advanced technologically, it's very scientific, it's also very used to trauma and stress. So the population is not typically the type of population, correct me Karen if I'm wrong, that we just kind of hair on fire freak out because, you know, you're having some medium-sized emergency. It's a population that's used to bombing, you know, uh, thrown from the sky. It's it's got crisis after crisis. So the population is well equipped. Or I I think from the outside, it looked to me like this was the one society that had a lot of chances from its own population to deal with that collective stress much better. So tell us now what really happened, and, and is that true or not? Well, that's true. We're good at uh, dealing with stress and we love stress also. I think it's a, it's a society that um, we're, we're really good at pushing ourselves, you know, like doing, doing, doing more, more, quicker, you know, younger. Um, and, and, and for me, yes, we also have a lot of resilience and we also work together, um, you know, in moments of crisis. So we saw how, how much people were kind of like, um, um, you know, agreeing to whatever was decided, um, despite lack of, you know, evidence or explanation or, you know, even like a public discussion about what are the options. You know, things were decided very quickly. And as you know, like we were like the first to be vaccinated again and again and again. And, and, and people are, are really used to be called, uh, you know, to the army, the way you, you are just being called any given day, you know, because um, it was decided to do another operation or another war. So, so we have this tendency, I think, to, to be very resilient. Um, and, and, and to me, it brings the question of resilience. What, what is resilience? So obviously, stress is not very good, especially when it's chronic, but it's also good, you know, in a way, because it kind of motivate, I wouldn't say motivate, but like moves us into like performing or performing better, especially if it's for short period of time. And obviously, when you grow up in a system like in Israel, you're used to being in stress and under stress. So, so our resilience is a bit different. And I think we have a different feeling about danger. You know, what's dangerous? Uh, because we're used to being in, in, in situations that change very rapidly. Um, I think a lot of research that has been done on the question of happiness and satisfaction, um, found again and again that Israel is kind of like, you know, up, up in the list. Not because life in Israel is so great, more because you, 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 you feel that, you know, everything can be gone or taken away from you in a second. And so there's a different value to things. Um, but for me, resilience, um, is nice that we're very resilient and especially that we can handle, I don't know, one year, two years like that. But then this is only one type of resilience. And other type of resilience is like more long-term resilience, what we need for life. And what we need for life is actually to be flexible, to know how to get out of this stressful situation, recharge, you know, learn something about it, about ourselves also, like what is my capacity? 
how much it takes me to get back to myself. What is my baseline? You know, if my baseline is overstressed all the time, then I have very, um, very little capacity to handle, you know, extra stress or more demands from the environment. So what do I, what do I know about myself? I think this is a very big question. And then, you know, we all have different ways to, to recharge. Um, so to find these ways and to know how to use them in life and to bring into the table a lot of other health issues like food and, and obviously sleep. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, in Israel, I'm not sure, like, we're really good at talking about these things. We're more talking about, you know, uh, what have you achieved and, you know, what's going on in your life. And we always have issues to deal with, but, but how often we really talk about, you know, um, passion and vacation and, and, you know, just time off and, and, and even like our mental health, you know, in terms of like, um, I feel that I need more um, relaxation. I feel that I need more meaning. I need time to myself, which is not very often found in Israel because of this togetherness. Um, and we work really hard um, here. We don't have much vacation. My friends from Europe always like amazed that I have maybe two, we two weeks vacations a year, you know, which is nothing. So how can, how can you even balance yourself? Um, so maybe it works for someone who grew up here and doesn't know anything else, but it's not necessarily the best um, solution. And, and obviously we have a lot of uh, cancer and a lot of different diseases that um, are very like dominant here. So, so when are you starting to rethink the model? This is the question. I just talked about Israel and Israel um, not in the pandemic and in the pandemic, but the question is always in regard to oneself, wherever we are, what is the model that we work uh, accordingly right now? And is it suitable for me? Maybe it's suitable for other people, but it's not suitable for me. And it makes me sick. So, and, and then if I think that there will be like all these like wonder, wonderful pills that will just solve everything for me, it's not true. So, so, so there's a certain responsibility to be taking about understanding the situation, understanding oneself, asking questions and, and figuring out what is the right model. Hmm. So that, there is another thing that I personally did not see very much, and, and perhaps it was Israel was the exception, but I didn't see any significant healthcare um, organization at the government level, public health organization, actually pushing people to focus on all the elements that could make them healthier without the help of pharmaceuticals. So basically saying, you know, you just mentioned the idea of being in the, in the beach that was also prevented in France. You need to do, you needed to, a special reason to be out for an hour. Um, so vitamin D was not pushed, sleep was not pushed, exercise was not pushed, nutrition and focus on metabolic health, let alone, let alone mental health. So what do you think uh, this in your day-to-day -day contact with patients and, and friends and family now, now that we are two and a half years, nearly three years into this, and it has seemingly taken a different feel. So we're not in the teeth of the pandemic, it seems. We're in this kind of weird aftermath or this holding pattern. We're not quite sure if it's over, if it's not over. What do you think um, the realization that they were so little focus on general health and mental health um, by public health. What do you think this has done to the general public? Do you think it has actually um, helped them to rethink their own health? Or do you think they're now kind of dependent, spoon-fed, waiting for government to tell them what they need to do next? 
especially in Israel or generally? Well, you can you can compare and contrast perhaps because you have a, a good understanding of what goes on in Israel, but you're also in contact with international people. So you can perhaps uh, share with us what your what your impression is at this time. I don't know if I would say that people um, are waiting to be informed about it, um, you know, from the government. Um, I think in many of the situations, then you just have your own struggles. So I have some friends whose children um, unfortunately got hospitalized in psychiatric uh, facilities because of the way things degraded along these two years that they were isolated. Um, and, and they just try to survive now the situation and to find a way out of it. Um, and these are good good families, good people who really are not, you know, just limited in their understanding of themselves and the situation, but then there are effects that you cannot control. And, and then um, to say that the government actually say something about it. So, so we had all this like media exposure to the situation um, in, in, with kids and adolescents, especially mental health issues, but also like um, overweight because they were closed at home. You know, they, they weren't active. They were eating much more. Uh, many of the parents had to work from home. So they were just like um, letting them, uh, you know, watch TV or play uh, computer games all day long. So obviously there are effects to all that. And, and, and the two years that they didn't study properly, obviously they're not at, at the same level. You know, some of them don't read uh, very well. So I don't hear right now anyone coming up and just saying, you know, okay, in the coming two years, we need to, um, you know, move our resources uh, and put emphasis on this and that because of the consequences of the pandemic. But I do wonder, because like, it's true, it's not a war, although we have a war now in Europe, but it's not a war like the second uh, world, world war. And, and then, you know, somehow I think we have assumed this concept that we, we need to just move on and things will, will catch up. Um, and there are always, uh, you know, moments, bad moments in human history. It's never perfect. Um, we're never just, you know, going up. There's always like going down and, you know, well, yeah, some generations will pay the price and other generations will, will get better, you know, with time. Um, so, so I think this is the general sense and, and I understand that. I think it's very complex to manage something like that on such a global level. But then the question is like for us as individuals, I think, uh, what do you need? What have you learned about yourself from the pandemic? So, because obviously it was a very different context than what we knew before. And hopefully we won't be again in this exact context. Um, so we need to ask ourselves, you know, how was it for us, you know, not to go on vacation for two and a half years? Because, you know, for me, like, you know, living in Israel is such a small country and going abroad is really important. It's, it, it's like, you know, extending the, the geographical limits and feeling that, you know, I'm exposed to different cultures um, and different mindsets and languages. And for me, it's a, it's, it's a big, it's a big issue, you know, not to travel. It's a big part of my resilience as a person. So I needed to give up on some, some things. And I also discovered other things, you know, like working from home, which I never did before in my life. Um, and, and, and then working with people on Zoom, you know, like therapy, 
we all moved to this, you know, before we used to talk about, to talk about a lot telemedicine, telemedicine, and everyone were skeptics. Yeah, yeah, sure. People don't really want telemedicine, you know, maybe it's really good for huge countries like the US where you're not really close to therapists often, you know, but you know, in Israel, why would you need that? You, you drive like what, 45 minutes, one hour somewhere? So, so we were really doubtful about who's going to use telemedicine, you know, and then we all had to use Zoom and then there are research about it, you know, there is research about it. Like, what does it mean when you're just see someone, but you're not feeling someone, you're not with this person in the room, because this is, for example, a very important thing for our nervous system. We often regulate ourselves with someone what we call what we call co-regulation you you see it mostly for example with kids and parents you know like when the kids are like you know unsettled and they go to the parents and then the parents kind of like you know with their you know nervous system come down the system of the of the child and this is how the child learns how to regulate oneself you know because it's not obvious it's not knowledge basically it's it's an experience so think about the fact that besides not being out and not being with other people in terms of like all sorts of activities we also didn't have this like basic co-regulation mechanism which for some people was like a disaster so then i think you really see um, the level of resilience that each person has. And you saw consequently a lot of, you know, marriages that break down and, and crisis in families, you know, domestic issues, because then you see it's like, it's, it's like in a way it's really crazy, but it's like a research, an experiment. You know, we are put in this context that was, you know, really hard to imagine before. And then all of a sudden you see what sustains, what sustains this crazy situation? What is, you know, going beyond? What is, what is getting stronger? What is getting weaker? And, and, and I think this was um, unfortunate, very unfortunate, but it was a very good lesson for each of us to understand what what is my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What do I need in order to bring more into my you know toolbox in order to sustain life? Mm. And and so would you say that with with the patients right now, especially you're seeing a lot more um, focus on things that might be. Uh, much broader than before, and particularly in relation to mental health? Well, I have to say that I didn't do a lot of therapy during the pandemics because I was much more involved in other projects, which are more uh, data, um, data and analyzes and science. Um, I do know from, I have a lot of friends who are um, uh, very active therapists and, and psychiatrists, and I know from them that they often see in the clinics today and also during the pandemic, like um, way harder cases. So if, if for example, um, a psychiatrist for adolescents, childhood and adolescents, you know, used to see a lot of, you know, a bit of anxiety, ADHD. Now they see, you know, a lot of very hard disorders because everything is like more extreme. What I'm actually dealing with in the past, um, let's say eight months is because now I'm working with elderly. So I'm working with people who are above 60, what we call elderly. It's, well, it's, it's a very subjective, uh, of course, uh, definition, but I would say like, you know, people above 60s, uh, often they were not being much in contact with their grandchildren or some of them already retired. And they uh, started to use a lot of technology during the corona. Um, and, and they actually uh, looked for brain stimulation 
because um, this feeling of being, you know, uh, so reduced to home, to TV, to, you know, the, the other person with you, but, but missing all this kind of, you know, learning and, and discussion and, 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 and you, and, and you experiences was really good for this kind of, um, age, uh, because they, it actually forced them to move more into technology use which was not obvious because we often have a issue of digital, you know, easiness with elderly. Um, and, and I worked on actually bringing um, better tools for cognitive training and cognitive rehabilitation, because this is really, really important at this age given the fact that we're just like getting older and older and uh, we're losing some of our activities, some of our friends and some of our contacts. And then, you know, slowly we become less active cognitively. So we lose a lot of our like um, agility and sharpness and even speed, speed of processing. Um, so, so this is where I took my, um, knowledge and applied it in order to give a better, um, a better solution for elderly. And it came really well with the fact that they ask for it more and more. So, so something about the pandemic, and I know now because I'm more involved in this, like, uh, what we call age tech. Um, something about the pandemic really made it very clear that as society, we have absolutely no solutions for elderly. And we just get the population becoming more and more, um, you know, uh, like becomes older. So today people live way older and, and we don't have any solutions for this. And we don't have medication. So this is why we have this like opportunity to actually influence in terms of like lifestyle. Because when we have medication, like in other um, situations, let's say depression, okay? It doesn't matter if it doesn't work perfectly, it doesn't suit everyone, but we have medications. So there is like the, the old discussion about lifestyle is not very much in the front, but the problem with like dementia and Alzheimer that we don't have medication and, and we invested all of our money in developing medication, but we don't really get to that point that we managed to find the medication. So we, the time passes by and the, and the population gets older and we have to find other solution. And we see more and more research that is done, you know, on really big cohorts um, that show that, you know, like cognitive training, nutrition, um, managing very well, like cardiovascular conditions, uh, physical activity actually maintain people, you know, in a better state and even improve their state for longer time. Uh, which, which I think is uh, obviously very very important to, you know, talk about and educate people. And, and sometimes the health, the health, um, um, you know, uh, leader leaders, you know, actually talk about it and propose things, but then the money doesn't really go there. So they would, um, do all sorts of, you know, changes in policies, etc. but then they won't really give money for, um, insurers and, and patients to get access to cognitive training. You know, they, they would just publish it, you know, just do sport, do sport. It's really important to do sport. It's really important to stay active. But what do you do to encourage people? And, 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 and this is like, a, a, I, 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 cannot, I cannot understand that because uh, obviously it's all about money and most of the money is in the pharma industry. Um, and insurance industry. And, and, you know, I just watched, uh, you probably know the story of Theranos, 
um, of Elizabeth Holmes. And you ask yourself when you see when you see the development of it, you, you and and she got something like one billion dollar, one billion dollar, or more than that. That went where? To, that went where the same Ponzi scheme. <laughs> yes, the same thing. People say, you know, along at least this past year, like, what about all the money that was gone for the, you know, the PCR tests, the antigen tests? You know, you could have built hospitals with this money. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, not to mention the cost of the vaccines uh, compared to treatment, for example. But that 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 is a very good illustration of I, a question that I have for you because you're involved in that tech world as well, and you just you mentioned data and and the role that technology may or can have. Now, if we look at the concept of Theranos, I think that uh, that's a good sort of bridge over. I think what was so successful in that is the idea of it rather than the reality that the reality was extremely difficult to to make it happen but but the story was awesome nobody would not like a story like this you know what if you could do that in one drop of blood so the the question is this kind of uh, mythology that we have around technology that technology is going to be the the saber that's going to save us from all of our you know, human uh, fault and, and human frailty. So what do you think the role of data and all these startup company, small or big, because technically Theranos was a startup company, which is hilarious as the size of it, but you can see the same narrative popping up, you know, that the mRNA was a technology. It was a, yeah, they called it a vaccine, but it was really a technology. So again, the presence of the shadowy thing of the technology was there, and this was going to be an answer to everything, and we could fix it so quick. If there was new variants, we could amend the code, you know. Everybody talked about the code, the code, the code. So technology seems to be this kind of mythical creature that we have there. How do you think... Some of that is just a narrative and some of that may actually be useful and could help us bridge over some of this big chasm that you've talked about. Well, it depends in, in what, because like um, there's a big difference if you're just, um, I don't know, creating a code because you want to have a better iPhone, let's say, okay, or a better computer or when you um, fraud people with creating, uh, you know, uh, a solution for blood, which is basically chemistry, you know, biology and chemistry, which the fact that you can sell such a far away idea and you think that technology can just like, you know, bridge the gap, you know, like that. Yeah, well, of course, I will find an engineer that will create that. And I think the same story now with Elon Musk, with him creating this electrode that he thinks he will implement, uh, you know, implant in people's brain, and then it will fix the brain. You know, I, I don't know who, and people will put money on it, and people will, I guess, you know, accept him intervening in the brain because he says he can fix it. You know, we we are not able to say about any disease, almost any disease, you know, you know, what exactly is going wrong in the brain. And obviously nothing is 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 just in the brain. And then, you know, like this kind of electrodes, when you implant it and then you collect data from the brain, besides the fact that the data is so noisy, you know, and it's so complex and it's so hard to know how to analyze it. And you think that, oh, I will get the best, you know, d- data scientist, then I will have a solution. Uh, th- there's something about technology that is, um, is completely undermining the science. And science is not, you know, a fake entity. It's, it's, it's maybe slow, it's maybe tedious, but it's knowledge that has been gathered for years. And, and, you know, no one in his right mind that knows something about the brain, you know, will think that what Elon Musk is offering is even possible. 
but but you know he sells it he sells the idea he gets people to put money there instead of you know in 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 the health system that there will be more doctors and more nurses and better care no they prefer to put their money in this like you know i don't know going to the moon so so for me you see you see you see the priorities and 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 this is the problem and this is the same problem with data so we collect a lot of data we we i don't know we take years and years and years to analyze the data we have people who don't understand anything about the data but just create all these really co- sophisticated computational models um there's a book that i was reading that is really interesting um it's called from bacteria to bach and backward so uh, so it's basically trying to understand the evolution of the mind and the fact that we were always creating new tools but the the mind today is about creating thinking tools and a computer is a, is a way of like create a very fast thinking tool obviously that is limited because it's created by us but in a way it's a it's a very sophisticated thinking tool um and and what we see today is this like age of um admiring computers and admiring data and admiring computation so it's basically competence without comprehension so it's tools that understand exactly yeah, that i was going to i was going to yeah i was going to quote dan dennett on that which is a, a fabulous formulation okay. for competence without comprehension and and the god of technology and the new religion of technology to some extent and he chose bach which basically i adore and this is why i got to this book because i was asked to to lecture about bach in the brain why people who are very mental like bach that was the question because of the structure etc etc and and i read this book because i prepared this lecture and i said wow that's such a like fabulous way to define the way i feel right now in the tech industry you know like competence without comprehension and i i worked um, for two years in a company that really really meant well and 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 they created this like eg platform to do diagnosis uh and eeg is a very so electrophysiological um signals are very complex to analyze to clean to analyze etc and they created the database so we can compare you know my way of brain functioning to yours and to other people in at my age etc and 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 then you know you, they really had the great tools you know the engineers the the phd in neuroscience but they didn't have people who know who knew anything clinical about what are the questions that people ask you know and even if they knew so they often didn't you they didn't know sorry um how it looks like in the brain signal so you can be a clinician and understand nothing about the brain you can be an engineer and understand nothing about the brain you can be a brain scientist and understand nothing about patients nor about engineer so the question is like how you bring all these three people together and create something meaningful and 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 often what you see in startup companies that you don't have the person who knows where to direct the product where to direct the data even in 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 clinical terms but also like in you know like global health wise terms you know why do we even need this data what where can it even help someone today we're so focused on just like having data having data you know saying oh artificial intelligence machine learning you know big data but you know uh all, all these kind of things that i don't know what they mean you know and often like i see the models that the data show us and i don't understand what i can do with it even so the question is like is it really necessary to collect so much data is it really going to pe- personalize medicine more maybe yes maybe not maybe in certain cases definitely 
but, but we're always like in trends, you know, and then we're all like being taken by the trend and then we don't really stop to think about it. And then 10 years later, there's a new trend. I remember when I started neuroscience, it, it, everyone promised that, you know, MRI will tell us everything we need to know, you know, like MRI, MRI, everyone bought MRIs, you know, <laughs> and, and, and then I heard about genetics, genetics will explain everything. And then the, um, there was something else that everything is autoimmune, you know, and, and, and then we were talking about this. So there's a trend every few years and, and now we're like in the big data trend. And the question is like, is it going to actually provide the answers we're looking for, which is, I guess, more personalized medicine? Or it's just like going to be used by all these companies or who sell data, you know, basically sell data like Facebook. You know, it was supposed to be a very nice social platform and it ended up to be like, you know, something involved in uh, politics and and, you know, so so I don't know. Regime change. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I, I don't know, like how you can even control these kind of things. Like data is like, it's like not personalized in a way. It's it's by essence for me, like all about lack of privacy and, and, and very open to to unethical conduct. And I know from, from, from like the regulation world, you know, like when you ask to, you ask people information. So you, so you have certain rules that you have to, to work by, but, but there are still a lot of things that are not controlled because we always like kind of create the rules, you know, along the development. So meanwhile, a lot of things are like, you know, open <laughs> for interpretations and I'm not saying like I, I, I feel, you know, um, conspiracy and stuff like that. Not at all. But I think this is the way we usually move forward. Um, and we're smarter, you know, like afterward. Um, so so I don't know what I think about it because I think it's a lot of promises and I'm not sure like any of it can can be, you know, kept. Mm. Mm. Well, that's that. That's a good uh, point to make. What I would like to understand now, before we conclude, is this concept of what data allows that individuality really uh, cannot. So, data at the scale you've mentioned the, the the idea of Theranos or Facebook, and I think everybody can can have their own example of the size of these companies that we're talking about and the size of any data sets. Once you start looking, for example, at brain activity. Uh, or physiology uh, variable, you can have millions of data points for one issue or one individual. So data really is this enormous um, concentration of pixelation about an individual. And of course, one could be very cynical and said it allows to do a lot of things that an individual or government or even the largest army cannot do, which is once everything is centralized, even if it doesn't make any sense by you or by me, if it's centralized, it's controllable in a much easier manner than if it's decentralized and you have to fill up, you know, paper, KGB file about X, Y, and Z. You have to write up the report. You have to make sure that, so, so technology, at least for, um, the general management of people is, is a huge help for sure if you want to centralize decision and you want to distribute them. Now, the question that I have for you in relation to the pandemic and everybody got used to having everything centralized, whether it's tracing apps or uh, some sort of digital status about your PCR, your COVID and whatever. In, in respect to that and personalization of medicine, do you think that we only going to have this centralization sold to us as it's going to make your life better? And in the question of COVID, as it, as it made our life better, really, did it work? And if so, if we were to apply this to other uh, issue like mental health, would technology really help? Or is that you think a vast kind of excuse 
Um, and the, the proof of how much technology can help us is, is still an argument to be made. I think it's a very complex question. Um, I mean, I remember when I worked, um, I was the head of research in a psychiatric hospital for a couple of years. And, and um, we, we were approached by different um, technological companies or startups that wanted to collect data about patients. So it can be, you know, like just on your phone or your voice, you know, your, your eyes when with the camera, whatever. And, and, and it's all under this premise that, you know, you will find a biomarker, you know, something that can maybe predict when uh, something gets wrong or the contrary, when you get better, you know, when you get better. So if you get better, we can know about it before you, you have a clinical response to treatment which usually takes, uh, especially with uh, antidepressants, it takes a couple of weeks. Um, so I, I, I remember that it always felt to me that it was so partial, you know, to, to collect this data and then think that this is going to be very meaningful um, while the, the phenomena that you actually monitor is so complex. So the, the, then I, I would suggest to collect data from very different channels, you know, and then try to figure out, you know, after, I don't know, years and years, because you need a lot of data on a lot of people, um, to see, you know, whether you can come up with a certain matrix of information that is meaningful. Um, and, and But this needs such a level of understanding of the data and computation that I don't see it happens because actually it doesn't happen in any hospital. Um, and, and I think it's very risky uh, to give, you know, private companies um, accessibility to so much medical information. So that's why they can only, you know, collect very small amount of data, but most of the data is in the health system, like what Pfizer did with Israel, with the agreement with Israel. So they give Israel vaccination because Israel agreed to give all the centralized uh, health system data to Pfizer. Um, so, so this is, so this is how you see that it's badly, badly done. I mean, they are asking, by the way, they can ask us as individuals who are insured by this health system. We have different health systems, but it's all like basically public. Um, and, and, and they ask you, can we, can we ask some genetic information from you? Can we use your information for research? But you need to sign, you need to agree. They approach you, they talk to you, they agree, you agree for that. And that none, none of this was done for the Pfizer vaccination, which is a big question. Like who, who are they to decide what to do with my data? I mean, I'm as a researcher for any stupid research I needed to do, I needed to sign people for consent because this is the ethical, you know, uh, laws that we, we manage ourselves in research. And also like, by the way, medical um, uh, practice, you know, you ha people have to sign to agree to accept, you know, medical care. You don't do with people whatever you want. So I don't understand how we can get to a state where this um, is well regulated, uh, used for good purposes, because who decides what are good purposes? You know, you can say, oh, I think this is really important to take 3 million people and use their data for this and that. On the other hand, I know working in like research, how difficult it is to collect data, you know, and then you say, oh, there's so much data just, you know, just being there in hospitals and no one ever bothers to, to analyze it and to give us some insights about, 
you know, medication, procedures, you know, certain maybe tests that we didn't know that can say something about a certain condition. So now, especially in Israel, I don't know what's going on abroad, but in Israel, all the big hospitals created these like data innovation centers. So they, they, they actually brought a lot of data, data scientists in order to analyze the inner data, you know, so, and, and they publish a lot of papers. So this is how they, they get also like, uh, you know, good publication um, resume, but, but I don't know, is it really done for like a good purpose? I, I don't know how can, how any of us can control this. So what to do not to use data or, you know, uh, to continue collecting data in a very spread way, you know, each company or each like research does a little bit here, a little bit there. So in order not to have a centralized system, but then, you know, obviously you also know that statistically it's way better for you to use big data because then you probably always find something, you know, which is way harder when you collect 50 people, 30 people, you know, for research, what we often do like in, in universities. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's really hard to tell. I, I'm, I'm open to learn about it and to see where it takes us. Um, but I also have my doubts and, and, and in any case, I feel that I don't have any way to control it. You know, this is kind of how the, the world works these days. And I hope that it will serve humanity, but who knows? It's an open question. Now, to conclude this conversation, which is really, really interesting, and I, I encourage the um, the audience to go into the show notes and to check out how they can reach out to what you've done and the work that you do back home. So to conclude, I will ask you the same question I ask everyone, but yours is a little bit more spicy because of the neuroscientist uh, background. So if uh, people listening to our conversation, they think, okay, so there's a lot of nuanced arguments here. It's complicated as per usual. But as a single human being with the amount of power that we have, which is not huge, uh, uh, what are the things that I, I could do, that you do as a neuroscientist to get through this life uh, and to still um, enjoy it, to still get through the experience, not as a, not as a chore, but rather as an, as an experience, as something worth going through? And therefore, what is in fact your weird sauce for life? Wow. Um, I would like to say red wine, <laughs> but I would say this is very simplistic and it's not always true. So, <laughs> so I will go into something deeper. So for me, I think knowledge is power. And knowledge is um, being curious about yourself, being curious about life, asking questions. You know, um, when you go to the doctor, you know, come knowledgeable, demand to have a conversation, um, find what what is right for you. Um, and knowledge is not only knowledge like intellectual knowledge, because you know, we, we tend to emphasize a lot, you know, cognition, mental activity, but basically we, we're also very emotional and physical. It's just like the human brain, especially in the technolo technological uh, era, is very much oriented into inhibiting, you know, our instincts and our emotions, um, and usually not very well. By the way, this is why we often see anxiety and depression. Um, and so I think knowledge is also knowledge about emotions, like how emotions work. How do I feel? How do I cope? What stresses me? You know, how do I recharge as we talked, as we talked before? How, how much capacity I have? What is my resilience? How I sustain life? 
So for me, I think this is the, the, the main journey um, because we all have challenges and ordeals and, and illnesses at certain point in life. But, but it, it really a question of like uh, how we also build resilience. And, and I think for, for some reason, there is this concept that it's something that comes from the outside. You know, someone will give me the solution. Someone will give me the pill. Now we often talk about the miraculous, yeah, uh, uh, solution of psychedelics to all human uh, problems. But, but you know, there's always a new trend about how something will solve everything. And I think it's not the point. The point is us, any one of us, um, um, asking the questions going uh going the extra mile you know to figure out who i am and building up capacity you know as as a you know as an athlete as an intellectual as a professional as a as a family member um and and as a person that would like to enjoy life despite the ordeals um so so this is for me um a very, very big thing. And, and this is why when I work with people, I do a lot of work on getting to know how your physiology works, how your emotion work, you know, how things connect with each other and, and, and where you want to take it. Dr. Karen Aviram, thank you so much for the time you took to answer some of our questions. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I wish uh, people will reach out to your work and um, take uh, take you on uh, what you just said. Thank you very much. If this conversation stopped you in your track, share it with your network. You never know whose life you might change for the better. Thank you for listening. Stay curious about our next guest and stay curious about life.